Well, if you're joining us for the first time today, we are in the middle of a series uh, through Genesis called Gospel Origins. And uh, last week, we started the story of Noah and the flood. And today is the second part of that story. So we looked at chapter six and seven last week. And today we're gonna look at chapters eight and nine. We're gonna dive right into the word. So if you have your Bibles, please turn to Genesis chapter eight. We'll start with verse one. Um, If you don't have your Bibles, um, it's going to go up on the screen as well that you can follow along. I'll give you a second to turn there. May God bless the reading of his holy and inspired word. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth and the water subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed, and the rain from the heavens was restrained, and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated, and in the seventh month, on the seventeenth day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. Then God said to Noah, go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wives and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, sea time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Verse 8. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast on the earth with you. As many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are a living, active, and speaking God. We thank you that through your Holy Spirit, you are present with us right now. And we pray that you would lead us to know you more, to love you with greater depth and affection, and to cherish Christ, our Savior, 
to cherish your gospel more and more in our hearts. Would you bless now the preaching of your word? May it bear fruit in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen. Well, friends, have you ever been uh, forgotten by someone you loved and depended on? You know, like just a moment where you felt abandoned, a moment when you needed someone to come through for you and they just absolutely let you down. Well, before the age of cell phones, I'm sure that many of us have stories of when our parents kept us waiting for hours and hours on end, whether it's at school or at the mall or at church. Um, You know, we probably had that experience. Um, Maybe they got stuck at work, late night meeting, something came up, whatever it might have been. Well, this happened to me on multiple occasions, but there's like one specific instance where this really stuck out. Uh, as I was preparing the sermon, I, I, I needed some Imago Day inner healing because I felt like the wounds from this. this well, I was in, in junior high and uh, at soccer practice and our practice ended around 6 p.m. And all the other kids were being picked up by their parents. I mean, I had some kids whose parents watched the entire practice. I had parents who were like so proud and so supportive of their kids. Not the game, not the tournament, but practice. They're watching their kids and rooting them on. Well, my parents were nowhere to be seen. So six o'clock practice ends. My mom's supposed to pick me up. She's not there. Several of my friends' parents, you know, they wanted to be kind to me. They asked, hey, are you okay? Do you need a ride home? Is your mom going to come? I said, yeah, don't worry. My mom's going to come. I had too much pride to dishonor the family. I'm like, no, no, no. She's going to be here. She's going to be here. Don't worry about that. Well, I waited and waited. And our coach was kind enough and responsible enough to wait with me. I mean, that would have been a bad coach. You just let these junior high kids, you know, just leave them in the dust and do your thing. So the coach was waiting for me and I'm getting so embarrassed because 30 minutes pass. My mom's still not there. An hour passes, my mom is still not, and it's to the point where every car that drives by, you're hoping that that's her, and it's more disappointment because it's not, it's, it's not your parents. It's not the person coming through with you, for you. So an hour passed. Finally, as the sun has already set, 8 p.m., my mom rolls up in her Mazda MPV. You know, for some reason, all the Korean moms were driving Mazda MPV minivans when I was in junior high. Uh, but she was frazzled. And she was embarrassed, especially when she, saw, when she saw the coach waiting with me. You know, she apologized. She apologized to me, and I'm like so upset, and I'm so embarrassed. Uh, I don't even remember why my mom was late. I'm sure there was a good reason. All I know is I felt abandoned. I felt disappointed. I was embarrassed, and I was angry. How dare my mom make me wait for two hours, right? Well, as we read in our passage today, Uh, Noah waited a lot more than two hours. He waited a lot more than two weeks and even more than two months for the flood to subside. In fact, Noah was in the ark with his his family and all of the animals for an entire year. Think about that. The moment when when Noah enters in the ark, God commands Noah to go into the ark. The, The rains come, the waters come up from the earth. 365, a full calendar year passes and you're in the ark just waiting, waiting for the waters to subside, waiting for for God to make the next move. He was 600 years old when he went in. He was 601 when he came out. Think about how difficult that must have been for him. The world had just been wiped out. Everyone he knew besides his seven family members have all perished in the flood. He is adrift at the sea. 
They don't know where they're going. There's no, there's no sails on this ark. There's no motor. There's no propeller. They're just floating around. Wherever they go is where they go. Day by day, month after month, nothing is in sight. All they see is water, daylight, darkness. No further instructions from the Lord. Did you know Genesis has no record? And so what we believe is, is you know, God spoke to, to Noah when the flood began. A year passed. And in that one year, there's no direct communication between Noah and God. God doesn't keep talking to him to assure him everything's okay. This is the next move. I've got everything under control. It's actually a year of silence. A year of silence. Noah doesn't know what God is going to do next. He doesn't know what God's thinking. He doesn't know whether or not the waters are just, is this the way it's always going to be? Right? A year passes, no further instructions from the Lord. It's just him, his wife, his three sons, their wives, and a whole bunch of animals. Think about the sounds. Think about the smells. Think about the stress. And regardless of how strong Noah's faith may have been, as righteous as he might have been, I really believe that he had moments when he thought that God had forgotten him when he had moments where he thought that God must have abandoned him, moments when he was filled with despair and darkness and total struggle and worry and concern. Imagine how guilty Noah and the rest of his family must have felt, knowing that every other human being perished in the flood and they did and could do nothing to save them, right? Think about the guilt. Think about survivor's guilt and, and, and that struggle that they experienced during that one year. I believe it was probably the most difficult 12 months of Noah's life. We don't think of it that way, do we? Right? Our childhood Sunday school version, rains 40 days, boom, Noah floods. And then uh, once everyone dies, Noah sends out the birds, comes back, dries up, they go back to living. We don't realize that they lived an entire year on that ark. We don't think about the darkness, the aban abandonment, the stress, the worry, the shame that Noah and his family must have experienced. Church, it's not that our situations could ever mirror Noah, but I would ask you, are you in a difficult state today? Are you personally going through a season where you feel abandoned, where you feel forgotten by God? If I asked you personally, when's the last time you sensed God working and moving in your life? When's the last time you sensed God speaking to you and leading you? Many of us might not even know where to begin, right? What would you say? I, I think it's safe to assume many of us be like, it's been so long. I really do feel like, like God's not speaking to me. God's not really working in my life. Maybe you feel adrift in your own flood of life. Well, if that's you, if that's you waiting for God to speak, waiting for God to move, waiting for God to reveal himself and work again in your life, our text today is for you. Our text is for you. This word is for you. And one of the most important verses that we're gonna look at is the first one we read together. Chapter eight, verse one. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. Last week in Genesis chapter six to seven, the theme was the judgment of God through the story of the flood. Last week was about God cleansing the earth from evil through the flood, right? 
It was a difficult message to preach, a difficult message for us to just wrap our hearts around. Well, this week, we're turning the corner. And the story of Noah is no longer about judgment. It's actually about promise. It's no longer about wrath and justice. It's more now about redemption and new creation and new life. And we're going to see that God is making new promises to his people, new promises to us through a covenant of grace. We're going to look at three things in our passage today, and they're simple. It's first, the promise remembered. Second, the promise celebrated. And third, the promise secured, right? The promise remembered, the promise celebrated, and the promise secured. Like I shared earlier, one of the most important verses in our passage today is verse one, where God remembers Noah. One commentator wrote that it's not that God had forgotten Noah, as if he had kind of like had a brain fart or, you know, just was like, oh my gosh, I just forgot and just left Noah floating around for a year. My bad, right? Uh, that's, that, that's not the, 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 the intent and that's not the meaning that the author had, Moses, when he was writing this. No, the point is that when God remembers someone, he remembers in order to save, right? So whenever we read in the Bible that, that God remembered Noah or God remembered his people or God remembered his promise, the purpose is to save. There's a redeeming work that God wants to do, a saving work that God is going to do there. So God remembered because in chapter six, verse 18, it, it says that God promises or God promises to make a covenant with him. It was future tense in verse 16, in verse 18. God told Moses, I will establish a covenant with you. Now what's a covenant? We don't use that word regularly, right? Simply put, a covenant is a promise. It's a promise more personal than a contract and more binding than a relationship. Let me say that again. A covenant is a promise more personal than a contract. So like there's legal diameters, but you know, you don't want to get like all legal with people, right? So it's, it's more personal than that, but it's more binding than just a relationship. It's more binding than you just making a promise to your friend, I'll pick you up, or I'll, I'll help you out, I'll study with you, or I'll loan you some money. Like those are just verbal relational promises. You know, there's something binding and strong about a covenant. Well, when the waters began to recede and the ark settled on top of Mount Ararat, we didn't read this, but you're familiar with what happened next. Noah sends out a raven. Ravens were strong flyers. And what he wanted to do is see whether or not the waters had dried up from the earth. Is it safe to go out? Is the earth habitable? Well, the raven goes to and fro, flies around, doesn't find anything and comes back. And then Noah's like, okay, I'm going to send out a dove. Well, doves don't fly nearly as well as ravens do, but the dove does the same thing, flies around, comes back. Noah's like, okay, I guess we're in the ark a little longer. Seven days pass. Noah sends out the dove again. And what happens next? The dove flies out, brings back an olive branch, an olive branch. And that, that tells Noah that the earth was hab habitable again, that the earth was showing signs of life. But here's a cool thing. The olive branch wasn't just a sign of life. It's also a sign of peace, right? It's a sign of peace. That as the waters were abating, as God remembered Noah, as God remembered his creation, God was renewing creation, bringing new life on the earth. God was making peace again with creation. And so that's how the olive branch, if you ever like remember learning in, like in, in social studies or history, the olive branch became a sign of peace between warring nations. The ancient Greeks, the ancient Romans would literally extend an olive branch to their enemies when they wanted to make peace. 
maybe they were dominating and say, okay, I mean, you guys are getting destroyed. You guys want to just peace, surrender? Or maybe they were losing and they wanted to wave the white flag. They would send the olive branch as a symbol and as a sign of peace. Well, church, this is how God has remembered his people. First, by actively causing the waters to recede. Second, by initiating peace with Noah and all of creation. Okay? Think about this. The flood was judgment. The flood was wrath. But he took that away and he brought peace and new life. Well, the third way God remembered his people was through his word. In verse 16 in chapter 8, God speaks directly again to Noah. Remember, a year passes. No direct communication, no direct contact. A year later, God directly speaks to Noah again. And this is what he says. Go out from the ark, you and your wife, your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth, be fruitful, and multiply on the earth. Man. Imagine being Noah, a year of silence, a year of darkness, feeling abandoned, not knowing what's going on. And then God comes, he shows up and he speaks. What good news this must have been for Noah. The fear of abandonment, the pain of loss, the stress of loneliness was now being healed as God remembered him by both word and deed. Church, let me tie this into our own lives and our situations you may be going through a period where God seems to be silent and distant. Right now, are you praying for things? Are you crying out for help? But does it feel and seem like the heavens are shut? Does it feel at times that like God has forgotten you? Your prayer literally it just hits the roof, the ceiling of your house and just comes right back down. It doesn't ascend to the heavens. It doesn't fall upon the ears and the heart of God. You feel like there's, there's nothing happening. Well, church, friends, the story of Noah gives us hope. It really does. The story of Noah gives us hope. Not an abstract hope that, oh, God knows everything and he knows you and he's gonna work everything out. It's, it's not just abstract and vague. No, the story of hope of Noah gives us hope because it's rooted in a promise. The story of Noah gives us hope because it's so personal. It's so intimate. And this is the promise that though God has not acted in your life for what is perhaps a long time, nevertheless, he will act again. That's what we see in Noah. It might feel like God hasn't acted. It may feel like God hasn't spoke. It may feel like God hasn't been doing anything in your life for so long and you can't even remember the last time. The promise is that he is not done. He will act again. He will speak again. He will come again as your rescue and as your redeemer. So what do we do? Well, let's look at Noah. What did he do? What did he do during that year of silence, that year of darkness, that year of insecurity, that year of pain? Noah remained steadfast. Noah continued to hope in God. Noah continued to obey him. So important, guys. Right? What would happen to us and our lives if we were just like, oh, you know, I've been praying about this for a week God didn't answer, I give up. I'm gonna figure it out myself. What, what kind of faith is that? What kind of hope is that in Christ? What would, what, what would happen if, if you and I were like, oh, you know what, I'm, I'm, I'm needing something desperately for my family, for my job, for my academics. I've been coming to church for three months. Nothing is happening. God must not care. 
I'm going to quit. Is that the life that God has for us? Is that the life that God wants for us? And certainly it's not. Friends, our challenge and our callings to remain steadfast in God, to hope in him, and to continue to obey him. Because our God is a God who remembers us. Our God is a God who remembers you. He knows you. And he's spoken to you before and he will speak to you again. The second thing that we want to look at today is the promise then, celebrated. The promise celebrated. As God called out to Noah to to come out of the ark, we see Noah's response and his first act on dry land. And, 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 And Noah's response and his first act is such an important reflection of his faith. Noah celebrated God's promise. And he didn't just do that with words. He did it with worship. Noah celebrated the word and the work of God with worship. Look at verse 20. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. See, I love this passage and I love the story because it tells us that not only did God remember Noah, but Noah remembered God. Not only did God remember Noah, but Noah remembered God. And church, this is amazing because it's not in our nature to remember God in his goodness. Definitely not when something super exciting, something that we've been hoping for and longing for for, 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 for ages, been so desperate for. I mean, when that comes to us, if you get it, your first instinct isn't, I need to build an altar and worship God. You want to enjoy it. The I don't remember exactly what my wife bought me, but this was while we were dating and she knew I, I, I had, there, something was huge on my wish list. So she bought me something for my birthday and I was super excited. And like the moment I saw it, I knew what it was, right? And I went to her like this and she, with my arms out and she thought I was gonna hug her, but I grabbed the gift. <laughs> I grabbed the gift and put it aside and I started opening it and playing. I was so excited. The gift was what I was longing for. And then I look I look at Alice and she gives me the dirty stink eye and I knew I'd messed up. And so I was like, oh, thank you. I love you. Thank you for being such an amazing wife, such an amazing you know, partner, girlfriend. It's crazy, right? But that's my nature. That's my nature. And I think for so many of us, that's our nature. We get obsessed with the gifts. We forget the giver. We fixate on the gifts. We delight in the gifts. We forget the giver. Do you guys remember the story of Jesus healing the 10 lepers in Luke 17? Right. Uh, these diseased men were outcasts in society and they cried out to Jesus saying, Master, Master, have pity on us. Have pity on us. Would you cleanse us? Would you heal us? Well, the Master had pity on them and he cleansed all 10 of them. Jesus healed all 10 of these lepers. And what they had to do after that was present themselves to the, to the priests. So the priests could examine them and say, yes, you are clean. You can return to society. You can go back to your families. You can go back to school. You can eat and live and work among other people because leprosy was contagious. So these lepers had to live on the outskirts of society. Well, these clean men went to the priests. They were declared clean. What happened next? One leper returned to Jesus. One leper returned to Jesus to thank him, to acknowledge him, to give glory to God. And that leper was actually a Samaritan, a Samaritan that was 
that was healed. The least likely of all 10 to respond with true worship. Now, Noah, feet on dry land after, a or after one year of living on an ark with people you're probably so sick of, with animals that smell and are so annoying, his feet hit the ground and he could have easily forgotten God in his moment of bliss. He could have kissed the ground, kicked off his sandals, danced on dry land. He could have looked for fresh food and water to eat and drink. He could have chosen the best plot of land to start his new home, to start his new life, but he didn't. What did he do? He built an altar and he worshiped God. And by offering God burnt sacrifices, he was remembering not only the promise of God, he was remembering his own sinfulness. He was remembering that I didn't save myself. God has saved me. I didn't deliver myself. God has delivered me. And I have to continue to depend on God. Continue to depend on God for forgiveness, for life, for grace. Church, this is so relevant for us today. Noah's remembrance of God through his first act of worship. You know what that did? That communicated his deepest value and his highest priority. That's what happens, right? Your first decision, your first fruit, right? These actions and, and these behaviors that we have, they, they're not just happenstance. They're not just ordinary decisions. They actually communicate our deepest values and priorities. And his were not fixed on his own comfort and pleasure. His priority was God himself. And remember who Noah was with, wife, three sons, and their wives. You know what this means? That Noah, as the head of that household, and Noah as the head of a new humanity. Guys, Noah is actually considered the second Adam. Do you know why? Because Adam was the first man and he was head over all of humanity. Well, in Noah's day, the flood wiped everyone out. The reset button was hit on humanity. And again, Noah is head of humanity. He is the second Adam. And what does Noah do as head of humanity? First thing he does is worship. He worships. He offers God burnt offerings, the first fruits of his heart. So how, how does this connect with us? Um, I, I first want to start with our parents and our families. Parents, I want to exhort you to remember what it means to lead your families in the Lord. I remember a brief period uh, when our family stopped attending church. I was in junior high. It seems like a lot of things happened to me in junior high. Um, uh, our, our, our family was always a church-going Christian family. Uh, my grandma used to always tell me, I'm a fifth-generation Christian. That means my grandmother's grandmother became Christian in Korea, right? Like such a legacy of faith in my family. Um, well, when, when I was in junior, junior high, my dad just one day stopped going to church. He's like, I don't want to go to church anymore. Well, if your dad doesn't go to church and you're in junior high, you don't go to church. So my brother and I, we just stayed home. And at first it was weird. It was weird. And we're like, oh man. But after a while, Sunday just felt like another Saturday minus the good cartoons, right? We just got used to that. Parents, do you guys realize all that you do communicates your values, your passions, your priorities to your children? So what are we teaching them when we miss worship because we'd rather watch football? What are we teaching them when we miss worship because we'd rather enjoy a day at the beach? What are we teaching them when we miss worship because we're just tired? We had a long week. We had a stressful week. We're not in the mood to come to church. Your, your children see that. 
Your children see that priority. They see that decision and they learn something about worship. They learn something about God. What do you communicate when you allow your children to miss Sunday because of extracurricular activities or academics? Maybe they're on a sports team that plays games on Sundays, always traveling and and having to play matches or games or, or rounds of golf, whatever it might be, always on Sunday. Well, when you enable your children to do that, what are you teaching them about God and worship? What are you teaching them when you allow academics to come before the Lord's worship, before the Sabbath day? When you remember the Lord, parents, you teach your children to remember the Lord as well. I wanna say that again. Parents, when you remember the Lord, when you offer him your first fruits, when he is your highest passion and priority, you teach your children how to remember the Lord as well. Well, students and singles, this applies to you guys as well. Uh, Jeremiah 5150, it's an awesome passage. And Jeremiah is calling God's people to remember the Lord in a distant land. Remember the Lord in a distant land. Why did Jeremiah even write that? The reason is because this word was for God's people who were in exile. Israel was conquered by, by, their, by her neighboring nations, particularly Babylon. So the Jews were taken as slaves into the land of Babylon. No more temple, no more Jerusalem, no more homeland, no more Canaan, the land of milk and honey. So they stopped worshiping. They forgot the Lord. And Jeremiah says, remember the Lord in a distant land. Now we're, we're not slaves in Babylon, but the principle remains for us today. Does worship remain for you a priority when you go away for school? Does worship remain for you a priority uh, maybe for singles, if you take another job in another city and another church, another state, where is worship? Where is church in your priority and your things to do? I've seen too many students say, oh, I'll get around to it once I get settled in. Once I make my dorm room great or apartment great or, or you know, figure out my job situation and, and get some rhythms down, then I'll look for a church. But friends, that wasn't Noah's pattern. Does worship remain a priority for you? Even when you go on vacation, guys. Hey, there's churches in San Francisco. There are churches in Portland, Nashville, Austin, Texas, Hawaii, Cabo San Lucas, wherever it might be. They have churches there. But for some reason, I've met so many people who when they go on vacation, they go on vacation from worship. Sunday rolls around and they're like, oh, you know, I can't go to church. I gotta gotta ride a helicopter. You know, I gotta, I gotta go play golf or something like that. Remember the Lord in a distant land. Our worship, our, our heart and our priority of worship should not change just because our circumstances, our location changes. Church, as the Lord has promised to never forget nor forsake us, can we celebrate his faithfulness by remembering him in worship? This leads us to our final point today the promise secured, the promise secured. As Noah built an altar and as he offered up sacrifices to God in worship, verse 21 tells us this. And when the Lord smelt the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, 
shall not cease. How did God respond to Noah's act of worship? God was pleased. God was pleased with the offering and he responded to God with a, uh, responded to Noah with a promise. And the promise was this, to never again curse the ground because of man, to never again destroy creation through the flood. But we have to pause in this promise because there's something puzzling here. There's something unique that we actually would never have expected to be there. Look back at that passage. Why did God say, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth? If you look at the passage, God says, I'm I'm never gonna curse the ground again. I'm not gonna destroy the earth again. He says, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Doesn't that sound like the reason why God initiated judgment and the flood in the first place, right? That's actually exactly what God said in Genesis 6, where it says, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually, right? God saw what was in man's heart and it was so evil. It was so set on wickedness that he says, I'm gonna destroy. I'm gonna destroy creation. Remember, remember God regretted, regretting, regretted having made God, man. It grieved him to his heart. The evil in man's heart was the reason why God brought the flood. So what changed? What changed in God where the evil of man would bring the flood, but but the second time around in chapter eight, the evil of man's heart elicits a promise. What changed? Well, I'll tell you what didn't change. Um, It's not that man had become significantly less evil. That wasn't the case. You know, there was still sin. There was still evil. That wasn't what changed. Nor nor had God become indifferent to the evil of man's heart. I know sometimes that happens, right? We just get used to the state of affairs. And so something that bothered us a long time ago maybe doesn't bother us anymore. It could just be a leaky faucet, right? Or it could be like a a low-grade hum that's in your room. At first you're like, oh, it bothers me so much, but then you get used to it. Well, that's not the case here. God's not getting used to sin. He's not getting used to mankind and say, you know, that used to bother me, but I'm good. You guys can just keep being wicked. I won't destroy you guys anymore. That wasn't the case at all. It wasn't as if God just accepted that that's the way it was gonna be. The point is actually this, what changed? Well, God was making a new covenant with creation. One that could cure the cancer of sin rather than just judge the effects of sin. What changed was rather than just bringing judgment and wrath, God decided to bring promise and grace. Rather than just see the effects of sin corrupting all of creation, God said, you know what? I'm gonna cure sin. I'm gonna really deal with sin. I'm gonna heal sin. So he brings a promise. He establishes an unconditional covenant wholly based on his grace and the gospel. You see, when Noah went into the ark, when Noah went into the ark, he took three things with him. Three things with him. Number one, he took the animals. Two by two, right? Noah gathers up all the animals, herds them into the ark. Second thing he takes with him is his family, right? Three sons, his wife, their wives. Well, there's a third thing Noah took into the ark, and that's their sin. Noah took his sin into the ark. And what happened when they exited the ark? Family exited, animals exited, sin exited as well. Sin re-entered into creation. Sin re-entered into the world. And this was Noah, the righteous man. Noah who found, who, who, uh, found favor with God, 
God says, I see the evil in his heart from his youth. No one knew this. No one knew this. No one knew that the flood didn't purify him. No one knew that the flood didn't change him. No one knew that the flood didn't heal this disease that, of, of sin that he had. And that's why he offered sacrifices to God. Well, and God knew this. And that's why God established a new covenant with Noah. Not a covenant of works, but a covenant of grace. Not a covenant that was based on performance of man, on the performance of man, but a covenant that was based on the sacrifice of Christ. You see, there's one reason why God was pleased with Noah's sacrifice and one reason alone. And it's because that sacrifice pointed to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. The apostle John describes Jesus as the lamb of God, sacrificed for the sins of the world. And when Jesus died on the cross, he was the pure and spotless lamb who takes our place and removes the wickedness of sin in our hearts. Church, the reason why God will not judge the world again through the flood is this, not because he's sorry and not because it was so devastating. The reason why God won't judge the world through the flood again is because he judged the world through the son. He laid all of his judgment on his son, Jesus Christ, on our behalf. So he will not judge the world through the flood. All of that judgment was laid on his son, Jesus. Well, this promise didn't just come with words. God delivered this promise as well with a sign, a constant reminder for us to see and believe. And this sign was a bow in the clouds. Now, whenever we read the end of this, this uh, uh, Noah flood story, we're always reminded of like the rainbow. And like, it's such a beautiful picture. And we think that, man, this is like such a friendly, peaceful, bonding image that God has for man. Like just the rainbow, the promise. Don't we think of that? Well, to the Hebrews, it was actually the exact opposite. To the Hebrews, it was actually the opposite. The word in Genesis, in the Hebrew, isn't rainbow. It's a bow in the clouds. And I'm so grateful that, that, um, that our ESV translations did the same thing. It didn't just call it a rainbow, that God gave them a rainbow as a sign. No, it's a bow in the clouds. And why is that important? Because to Israel, the bow represented the weapon of warfare. To Israel, the bow represented hostility and war. The bow represented wrath. The bow represented enmity. But when you see a rainbow in the skies, what direction is it pointed towards? Where is the arc of the bow aimed at? Well, friends, it's not aimed at the earth. It's not aimed at you and I. It's aimed up at the heavens, is it not? It's aimed up at the heavens. And what that symbolizes is that the punishment has been paid by the one who came down from heaven. The punishment is not paid at, by us, not by our blood, not by our suffering. No, Jesus Christ, the lamb of God, endured the punishments, endured the judgments, endured the flood of God in our place, stretched between heaven and earth, is the bond of peace paid for by the Lamb of God. Let me say that again. Stretched between heaven and earth is the bond of peace paid for by the Lamb of God. Church, the next time you see a rainbow, would it remind you of promise? Would it remind you of God's covenant and his faithfulness? 
but would it also remind you that that covenant came at a cost, that that rainbow represents the bow aimed at Jesus Christ, who suffered and died for your sake, for our sake, to spare us from judgment, to give us new life, to make us new creations. There were three applications for us today, and I want you to consider each one of them. First, where are you in your walk? Where are you in your journey? If you're in a place of of abandonment, of darkness, toiling, loneliness, and struggle, would you believe that God is not done with you? Would you believe that God remembers you, that he knows you, he loves you, and he will speak to you again? I know for so many of us, it feels like, it feels like there's no hope. It feels like, yeah, God, God, God feels so distant and we feel so lost. The word for us today is to place our hope in God and know and believe he's not done working and he's not done speaking. And he wants to reveal himself to you in his grace and in his glory. The second thing that I would like for you to consider is your worship. How are you celebrating God's promise? What are you offering to the Lord? Is it your first fruits or is it the scraps from your table? Would you set apart your life, your heart, your resources, your best for the Lord and his glory? And would you realize that that is a testimony? That's a testimony to your friends, a testimony to your family, a testimony to your community of the worth the importance, the beauty, and the value of our Lord and Savior, Jesus. Would you consider that today? And lastly, would you consider the gospel? Jesus Christ, who endured the wrath, the flood, the hostility, and the judgment of God in your place. May that produce in us joy. May that produce in us thanksgiving. May that produce in us worship. Let's pray together. Lord, we we thank you, Lord, that we can be spared, that we can experience your grace, though our hearts are filled with continual evil, though we are so stained with sin, we can receive your promise that you will not abandon us, you will not destroy us because of Jesus Christ who gave himself as an offering, as a ransom for us. Lord, I long and I pray that that gospel truth would truly be the treasure in our hearts, that that gospel truth would save us, that that gospel truth would transform us, would produce in us steadfast hope. Lord, would you bless, would you bless this church? Would you bless our families? Would you bless the individuals here that we would truly be worshipers of you, living sacrifices, holy and pleasing. We long for that. We want to wait on you. And we pray, God, that you would would fix our eyes and our hearts solely and resolutely upon you.